Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 3? This summer we've been taking a break from our regularly scheduled programming in the book of Acts to study the covenants that we find in the Bible. Uh, We're looking at the covenant of works today. And uh, we're going to read a few verses in Genesis, and then we're going to jump to Hebrews and also read a few verses there uh, to help us in our understanding of um, the covenant. The covenant of grace is what we're studying. We studied the covenant of works last week. Genesis 3, we're going to pick up right after that fateful moment of Adam and Eve Uh, Taking and eating the fruit that was forbidden, running and hiding from God. Now, being found by God, the Lord pronounces uh, a prophecy to both the serpent and the woman and then also to Adam. We're going to read verses 14 and 15, what God says to the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, which we will spend most of our time with this morning. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Let's keep your finger there. We'll we'll hop back after Hebrews, but let's turn now to Hebrews in chapter 2. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 10 through verse 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies... And those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that Through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God, To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The grass withers, the flower fades. This is the word of our God, and it stands forever. 
Well, we all know the first question at any fast food counter is uh, for here or to go. Or, um, as we recently discovered in the UK, eat in or take away. What? For here to go. For here to go. What's that question asking? Well, it has nothing to do with the food that we eat, right? Uh, the question is, is, is not actually getting to um, what kind of food we're about to order. It has everything to do with how we receive the food that we are about to order. So when I'm standing there in line at Culver's and I get my deluxe butter burger and they ask for here to go, the question is just, are you going to get on a tray or in a, in a bag? But the, bu- the burger will be the exact same, right? Well, what does this have to do with covenant theology? Everything, I tell you. Everything. Everything in understanding the two covenantal principle that we find in the Bible. There are two ways that we can relate to God. Two ways. Either by law or by gospel. Either by our works or by God's grace. That's how we can attain the blessing of of living with God forevermore, which we saw last week as we looked at the covenant of works, is what God was offering mankind in the garden, right? If Adam would have obeyed, he could have eaten of the tree uh, tree of life, and he would have lived forever. That was the substance of the covenant of works. That's what he could have attained and what he could have earned. Well, what about the covenant of grace? What do we get in the covenant of grace? And the answer is the exact same thing, that That everlasting life, that blessed life, that perfect life which comes through communion with God, fellowship with God, friendship with God. That is the exact same thing. Covenant of grace, covenant of works, equal in substance. The question is how are we going to receive it though? How does it come to us? That blessing of everlasting life, how will we take it? It's that question for here to go. Works. Or gospel? Law or grace? This is how our larger catechism introduces the covenant of grace. Question 30. Does God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Answer. God does not leave all men to perish in that estate of sin and misery into which they fell by the breach of the first covenant called the covenant of works. But of his mere love and mercy delivers his elect out of it and brings them into an estate of salvation by a second covenant called the covenant of grace. Now we get what the first covenant promised, but in a different way. Not by works, but by grace. Question 32. How is that grace of God manifested in the second covenant? How do we find that grace? Answer. The grace of God is manifested in that God freely provides and offers to sinners a mediator. A mediator. Friends, there is no understanding the covenant of grace, which we're talking about today, apart from understanding the mediator. Grace only comes to us through him. And the mediator is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Where Adam failed, as we saw last time, Jesus steps in. Where works failed, grace will win. Christ will fulfill the obligations demanded of humanity in the covenant of works and give us the reward of his obedience 
in the covenant of grace. So without him, we have nothing. Without him, we have nothing. And he is how we get all the blessings that God promises. We can either do it on our own or somebody else can do it for us. And this mediator, this someone else, is alluded to first in the Bible in Genesis 3.15. So we're looking there today, Genesis 3.15. And he is the offspring, or some translations, the, the seed of the woman that is promised there. He's the one who will come to bruise the head of the serpent. The son of Eve that will do what his father Adam failed to do. The one who will thwart all the works of the devil and bring us to everlasting life with God. This is the very first declaration of the gospel, Genesis 3.15. And that's why in theology it's referred to as the Proto-Evangelion. Proto-Evangelion, two Greek words plastered together. Proto being uh, the word for first. Evangelion is the Greek word for good news or gospel, which we hear in our English words like evangelism or the beautiful name Evangeline, right? The first gospel proclamation comes here in Genesis 3.15. And it's hard to overstate how important this verse is. Martin Luther was moved to say that this text, Genesis 3.15, embraces and contains within itself everything noble and glorious that's to be found anywhere else in all of Scripture. It's all contained here in, in seedling form. And the remaining covenants that we find in the Bible are just further outworkings of this one covenant of grace. God's plan of redemption starts here. It's first announced here. But we miss it if we don't see that this announcement is, is not so much, primarily not so much about a mission, but about a man. That it's about a person. That it's about our Savior. And that's who we want to focus in on today. What can we learn about our mediator of the the covenant, our Savior, from Genesis 3.15? Can we learn that much? Well, I think more than we might think at first glance. The first thing we learn is that this coming Savior is described as a seed. That's the first thing. A seed. Again, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, or your seed and her seed. So that means that he'll be a child. He'll be a descendant from Adam and Eve. And this is significant for two reasons. Why does it matter that he's described as a seed? Significant for two reasons. The first is this. It means that he comes to be like us. Like us. It's interesting. In 1 Timothy 2.5, the way that Paul puts it. Let me read it for you. He says, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men or mankind. And that mediator is, listen, the man Christ Jesus. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say the God, Christ Jesus, which would be accurate. He doesn't say the God-man, which perhaps would be most accurate. But to highlight, I think, the most astounding aspect of this plan of redemption, Paul says, no, he is a man. The mediator between God and men is a man, the man, Christ Jesus. So, The seed of the woman, the offspring of Eve, has come in Christ. And since he's one of us, he must help us. It's a law of nature. Paul says that in Ephesians 5. No one hates his own flesh, Paul says. We can't. 
How could Christ hate us since he shares our flesh and blood? This is what Paul says, Ephesians 5, 29 and 30. No one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. Because he shares in flesh and blood with us, he has to care for us. Isaiah 58, 7 says that nobody can turn their back on their own flesh. And so, too, Christ can never turn his back on us, his people, the church. But it's even more profound than that. Because it's not simply that Christ shares our humanity. He shares our lineage. He's a family member. And, and that does change things. Um, think of, as, as by way of illustration, think of how collectively our hearts ached as a human race um, on September 11, 2001, to, to hear of nearly 3,000 innocent lives that were snuffed out, mercilessly murdered. We all mourned. We all grieved. And yet that, that grief wouldn't compare with somebody, uh, compared to somebody, let's say, living here in Michigan versus someone living in Manhattan. And even more so, it wouldn't compare to somebody who actually lost a relative in that attack. The, the relationship heightens, it heightens the love. And so, the same thing with Christ and us. In his classic book on covenants, Herman Witsius makes this point about Christ sharing our nature. He says it's not simply that he's human as though God formed another a man like he formed Adam out of the dust, but rather he's born of a woman. Paul says that in Galatians 4. He, he came into a family. He had a family tree. That matters. Because he's born of a woman, he's really our brother and our family member. And so we had read in Hebrews 2, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God. In that section, the author of Hebrews makes a point to say he didn't become like angels. He didn't stay like God. But he became what he was not to help people who could not help themselves. He became one of us. He became our family member. It's the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, the human race that he helps. And this is significant for a second reason. Why does it matter that, that Christ comes as a seed? Well, the first is that he's like us. But the second is it helps us understand the whole Bible and why it's written the way it's written. This prophecy in Genesis 3.15 gives structure to the whole story of the scriptures. Understanding that the covenant of grace centers on the seed of the woman will help you read your Bible better. It's why the language of offspring dominates the book of Genesis. Over 40 times that word comes up in Genesis. It's why there's so many genealogies listed in the scriptures. Why do we follow so closely the stories of people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Why, do we, why are we always told that so-and-so is the son of so-and-so? Why does any of that matter? Well, I can tell you this. While it might seem boring or unimportant to us, it was riveting for ancient Israel. Why? Because they knew that one of these people, one of these names was going to be their savior. Because it would be a child of a woman. Somebody descendant from Adam and Eve. They were waiting. And so genealogies never bored them. Let's 
With that in mind, turn to Luke 3. Come, come with me to Luke 3. We're going to work through this together. I want you to get in that, that kind of ancient Israelite mindset that always had its hope put in this promise from Genesis 3.15 that, that somebody was coming. There was a child coming. And that changes the way Luke 3 would have been read and, and heard. We're going to start in verse 22. We will make it through to the end of the chapter together. And just take heart. You're just reading silently. I'm the one who has to pronounce these names. So. We can do it. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janiah, the son of Joseph, the son of uh, Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maat, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semain, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jerim, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elikim, the son of Melie the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Abinadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Ruah, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaleel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. There it is. There it is. This is what they have been waiting for. For us, what? For 37 books? For them, 3,700 years? And here it is. Jesus comes in to family history and proves that through all of these generations, God has preserved his good word. Think about each one of the generations represented here, all of the dysfunctions and, and the mess and the muck that would have been in each one of these families. Think of your own family. We all have it. And now here we have listed for us thousands of years of family dysfunction, and none of that was enough to overcome what God had promised. No, from this family, I'm going to bring a Savior. Take heart, friends. God can redeem your family too. God can work His grace through your family too. There is nothing too great that can keep God from working his good purposes out. And so do you see the significance? When we read our own family history or we look through a family scrapbook or, or, or trace a family tree, while, while we ourselves might be reading about people we don't know personally or have never met, it's still our story. This is where I come from. Jesus came into our story. Friends, 
This is your story. This is family history. And it matters. This structures the entire Bible there in Genesis 3.15. So we learn from this this proto-gospel announcement that the Savior will be the seed of the woman coming in our likeness as our relatives, as a relative. And that gives historical structure uh, to the scriptures because we read the Bible awaiting the arrival of this offspring from Eve. Well, there's something else that Genesis 3.15 tells us about the Christ of the covenant. We saw that he's a seed. And the second and the final thing this morning is that he's also a sufferer. He would come to be a sufferer. The way that's captured in Genesis 3.15 is to say that the serpent will bruise his heel, the Messiah's heel. That is to say that the offspring of the woman is going to come into to conflict with, with God's great enemy. There's going to be this enmity, conflict between the two. And the Savior is going to go into that fight and he's not going to come out unscathed. He will suffer. Uh, this is not the only place that that is predicted of our Savior. Most famously would be Isaiah 53, right? Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten my God, afflicted. He's pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. When we hear this passage in Isaiah, what do we think of? Well, I think we think of the cross, and rightfully so. But the question is, could we think of more than just the cross? And the answer is yes. What's being promised here in Genesis 3.15 is that the Messiah is going to come into the same sin-cursed world that Adam and Eve live in, that you and I live in. And, and we know that suffering goes well beyond just the moment of our death. Our whole lives are marked by suffering. He would know the toil and the trouble that Adam caused and inflicted upon the entire world. Here's how the Heidelberg answers the question, what do you understand by the word suffer? It asks the answer... That during his whole life on earth, that's the first thing it says, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the anger of God against the sin of the whole human race. And this he did in order that by his suffering, as the only atoning sacrifice, he might set us free, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. So, why does it matter that we understand that Christ came as a sufferer? Why does it matter that we understand that from womb to tomb, he knew the miseries of this fallen world, the curse of sin, the struggle of humanity? Well, it was all right there in that Heidelberg answer. It shows us that after God enters into this covenant of grace, this wonderful news that there's another way to receive the substance of the blessings of life with God, he doesn't... Toss out that requirement of holiness, that requirement of righteousness, that requirement of obedience. He doesn't toss out the punishment when we aren't holy, righteous, and obedient. No, somebody would still have to pay the penalty, the curse. Someone would have to be our substitute. Friends, at the center of the covenant of grace stands a savior, and he's a savior because he's a substitute. He comes in your place. 
In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. So, do you see him? Do you see someone who came to take what you deserved and then give you what you most certainly do not deserve? Everlasting life in him. That's the definition of grace, by the way. Receiving what we don't deserve. Do you see him who made it possible? Do you see him hanging his head, bowing his head in anguish at the cross, suffering for you? Suffering as a substitute. How can he become yours? That's got to be the question today. How can he be my substitute? Surely he's somebody else's substitute. But how does what he did become mine? And the answer is faith. You believe in it. You see him and you believe and you say, that was for me. Do you see him today? Witsius writes this. When we further contemplate the sufferings of Christ, and among them that cruel scourging whereby the Lord Jesus was made a spectacle to men and angels, we then understand what the holiness of God is. What God requires in order that sins be remitted. What a sinner must undergo if he would make satisfaction to God and to his holiness. What a dreadful thing sin is. But here, here we understand most of all how much we are indebted to Christ who endured so much for us. Can you say yes and amen to that? Can you say Christ endured so much for me? That it was for me, not just for other people, but for me. Can you say that today? If you believe today, then it was. The promise made the entire way back to the dawn of time in the garden was a promise made for you. God promising life, eternal, blessed, perfect life to you in the person of his son. By faith, it becomes yours. His suffering becomes yours. But more than just his suffering, his victory. Look again at Genesis 3.15 here as we wrap up. Because it does not just say that his heel would be bruised. It also says... That the the head of the serpent would be bruised. So it's not just that his suffering becomes yours, but his victory. That's the image of victory. Boys and girls, maybe it's a little confusing. You think, how can, or, or what does the Bible mean when it says that Satan will bruise Jesus' heel, but he will bruise Satan's head? What is the idea there? And I'm thinking maybe it's something like if you've ever seen somebody and there's a bar that says, don't try this at home, that came up right here. You're all reading it, right? But maybe you've seen somebody um, extinguish a candle with their fingertips. Don't try this at home, right? I've said it. What are they doing there? Well, when they extinguish it with their fingertips as opposed to just blowing it out, they'll get a little sting, a little burn. It's minor. But that's nothing compared to what happened to the light, It's entirely vanquished, extinguished. And that's something of Jesus coming to take on Satan. Yes, he dies at the cross, and we think, we see that, and we think, what horrible suffering, what immense pain, and yet it is nothing compared to what he does to the devil. It's almost as though Jesus could say, you should see the other guy. You should see the other guy. What does Hebrews tell us again? Hebrews says that through death, he might destroy the one who has power of death. Yeah, he died. That's nothing compared to Satan. He was destroyed. Gone entirely. 
And Jesus is raised victorious. And so, yes, sure, as he stomps out the serpent, it kills the serpent, there's a bruise at the bottom of Jesus' foot. It's nothing. He comes to suffer. But in that suffering, in that act of, of taking the sting of death, he crushes death entirely. And in that act, the covenant of grace is fulfilled. We need to see that, friends. When he hangs his head in death on the cross, it is not a failure. It's a fulfillment. He has won. The covenant of grace has been fulfilled. And we'll see throughout the remainder of of the summer how we get from the garden the whole way to Calvary through covenants made with people like Noah and, and Abraham and Moses. But here we just understand in Genesis 3 that God is establishing there are two ways that you can relate to me. Two ways you can have a relationship of blessedness with me. You can work for it or someone else can. And that someone else is Jesus Christ. So you can, you can take it by law and by works or you can receive it by faith. Receive it in grace. And the answer seems to be extremely obvious, right? If we ask, how will we take it? How will we receive it? By our own works or by the works of Christ? Well, the answer is so, so simple. And yet, within all of us, there's this voice that's in the back of our heads telling us, well, maybe I could, though. <laughs> maybe I could actually be that one person to do something that would make God say, you know what? That was pretty impressive. You know what? You're right. I'm going to swing wide heaven's doors because of what you've done. We're all wired for works righteousness. We all believe this lie that maybe we can earn it. And so every day we must preach to ourselves the amazing truth of the gospel. Again and again, over and over. Even as we hear it in the words of an an old hymn that goes like this. Till Jesus' work you cling by a simple faith. Doing is a deadly thing. Doing leads to death. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Will you do that today, brothers and sisters? Today, for the first time, or even for the thousandth time, recognize that there's nothing in your hands that you can bring to God. There are no works, there's no righteousness you can, you can hold out to him. Instead, we must all take hold of this Savior, this substitute by faith, and bring him to God. We say, this is all I have. Your son, the, the seed of the woman, uh, the, the suffering servant, the Savior of sinners. Friends, he's all you have, but he is enough. Father, we give you thanks for... The gospel, we thank you for your grace. And that although we were not deserving to be brought out of our state of sin and misery, you were delighted to, uh, to devise a rescue plan. A second way which we can receive life with you. And what a better way it is. Lord, we thank you for Christ, who through his death has opened up that new and living way to you. Would you give us the faith to receive him, to lean upon him, to rest in him, and say that Jesus has paid it all. We pray this in his name. Amen.